Well, I too want to offer my congratulations to high school seniors and your soon graduation this Friday, in case you didn't know, May 28th. In fact, the baccalaureate will be here at Alliance tomorrow evening. Receiving a diploma is a significant milestone in your lives. I trust one of many to come. It is a symbol of a great achievement of having successfully completed the requirements for graduation. You'll, you'll, you'll get to move the tassel from one side to the other. Of course, we know that means more than that you merely attended some classes. It supposes that you acquired the knowledge necessary, indeed the proficiency, to, to pass and move to the next level, whatever that is for you. And so again, I say congratulations. But, 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 but please understand, it does not end here. Acquiring knowledge is a necessary lifelong pursuit. For example, we trust that you know more now than when you were two, four, six, and eight. And, and you will know more at 28 and 38 than you know now. Can I encourage you as you cross the stage on Friday to commit to continue learning and growing academically and physically and vocationally and relationally and spiritually in the years to come? Further, to make knowing and growing in Christ the most important pursuit of your lives. I did not say the only pursuit. I said the most important. I wish that you would see me better, your parents greeting you on the other side of the stage to say these words of Paul to Timothy to you. Remember Jesus Christ. Because the world will be saying just the opposite. You're on your own now, so forget Jesus. How easy it is to forget, to move on, to claim a better, a superior knowledge. The Apostle John has wanted us to know some things through our study of 1 John. We know there were false teachers claiming to know more than John and to know more than the church, and they were seeking to draw away people, dare I call them disciples, after themselves. You will face the same challenges. People who claim to know more, to be more intellectually enlightened, and for you to reach the same level of enlightenment and acceptance and freedom, you too must know what they know, embrace what they embrace, and often their professed knowledge requires a rejection of what you know, what you have heard all of your lives regarding the Christian faith, the truth of Jesus and His gospel. So, will you grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, or will you grow seemingly beyond Him and reject such childish notions? I want to say to you, do not leave him behind on the stage at this pivotal stage of your lives. 
You see, just as you end this chapter of your life, we arrive at the end of this book, interestingly, our six-month study of John's first letter. I'll see it as almost a semester-long study. What have we learned? What will you keep in, uh, in your pursuit of spiritual maturity? You see, as John gets to the end of the letter, before we move on to the next one, he gives sort of a class review, a semester summary of what he has taught just to make sure that we got it, a final exam, if you will. Because as you and I and we graduate, there will be tests and temptations along the way. Will you continue to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? It's the first attack that will come. Will we continue to obey His commands? Will we continue to love the church? Or given your newfound freedom, will you quickly dismiss the church? John wants us to pass. I want you to pass to demonstrate a degree of proficiency. So he summarizes in verses 13 to 21 of chapter 5, the last nine verses of the letter. He uses the word, interestingly, know or knowledge several times. Don't, don't miss that. He's summarizing. These are the things that he has taught us. These are the things that he wants us to know, things that we can know that, remember, will give us assurance as we face the, the challenges of life and the cries of the culture. Because make no mistake about it, culture will be against your faith. He says we can know that we have eternal life. We, we can know that God hears and answers our prayers. We, that we can know that those born again do not sin, not at least as a practice of life. We, we can know that incredibly we are of God and that we can know that the Son of God has come and that we can know him. We looked at the first two of those last week. We'll finish the letter today by looking at the next three. Let's read the text, 1 John chapter 5, verses 18, all the way to the end of the letter. I want you to notice that verses 18, 19, and 20 all begin with the words, we know. We know that no one who was born of God sins, but he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, finally, no longer little. Guard yourselves from idols. Do you notice he draws intentional contrasts by what we know between us and the world, between us and the evil one? The contrasts go like this. We know those born of God do not sin. The implication is that those who are not born again do sin as a way of life. You, you will find that, and the clarion cry of culture will be, Join us. We know that we are of God. And those not of God still lie in the power of the evil one. 
If you know that is the truth, it will come as no surprise that they will want you to follow them in their sin. We know that the Son of God has come. He has given us understanding such that we know the truth. We know the true God. We know eternal life. And by implication, those who do not know the Son do not understand, do not know the true God, and do not have eternal life. John had written earlier in this very chapter, he who has the Son has the life. That is eternal life. And he who does not have the Son does not have the life. If all of that is true, and it is, John finishes with a final command. Little children... Guard yourselves from idols. We'll talk about that as we close in a moment. But what, is he, what he is saying is simply this. If we know, uh, if what you know is true, then why follow those who would seek to draw you away? Because they will. Why would you reject what you know? Don't follow false teachers so-called, and their idolatrous teaching that would seek to draw you away from the truth, from the true and the living God, away from Jesus Christ. So let's look at these final three things that we know. Remember, He gives them to us to give us assurance of eternal life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life first. You know that no one who is born of God sins. In a sense, he is saying, why, why live the way they are? Why, why live in a life of sin? Why listen to the cry of culture that says real life, fun life, is to be found here? We're born of God. We know better. He, he's summarizing what he already taught. He taught this Seemingly troubling truth back in chapter 3, you know that He, that's Jesus, appeared in order to take away sin, which, by the way, leads to death, no matter what the promise of life sin offers. And in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him sins. No one who sins has seen Him or knows Him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. They'll want to deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. He says the same thing in our chapter. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed, God's seed, abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. We saw this is, when we looked at that back in chapter 3 some time ago, that this has been called the most difficult uh, passage in the New Testament. And, and now John repeats it at the end of the letter. We know that no one who is born of God sins. What? We talked about that. I'll simply summarize. Obviously, the biggest, chapter, the biggest challenge in chapter uh, 3, uh, the biggest challenges were in verse 6. No one who abides in him sins. And verse 9, no one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Was John there suggesting that those who are born of God, that is those who are saved, those who are born again, is he suggesting that Christians do not sin? In fact, that they cannot sin. That's a challenge. Some have taught, have taught that. And yet, that seems to go against what John 
also taught back in chapters 1 and 2. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us uh, our sins. If anyone sins, chapter 2, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So we cannot say we have not sinned or have no sin. And if we sin, we simply confess our sin. And if we sin, and the force of that verse is when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, one who intercedes for us. Hold on to that truth. We're going to see it again in our chapter. So I I said then, and I say again now, I, be, I do not believe um, that, ne- that chapter 3 or chapter 5 teaches sinless perfection. That is, that Christians do not ever sin. But I did say then, I say again now, God's grace and the promise of forgiveness is not permission to sin. When the culture cries to you, come join us, and you begin thinking about the invitation, and you think, what does it matter? My sins are forgiven. It matters. You see, we find that Christians do not sin as a way of life, and when they do, it grieves them. And instead of pursuing sin, Christians practice righteousness as a way of life. They seek to purify themselves through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit Chapter 3 again said, they do not practice sin as a way of life because God's seed remains in him. That is God's spirit given to us to be with us and live in us, to free us, listen, to free us from being slaves to sin and to fill us to be slaves of righteousness. So the idea is not... um, Uh, The idea is not occasional sinning which grieves us, but rather practice of sin as a way of life. All those who are born of God, who abide in Him, demonstrate the reality of a new life in Christ by not sinning as a way of life. Their lives are not characterized by a pursuit of sin, no matter what the invitation is. John Stott said it this way, sin and the child of God are incompatible. They may occasionally meet, but they cannot live together in harmony. High school seniors, and frankly, everyone else, the world will cry out to you. They will offer offer sin, saying that it is fun. They won't call it sin. They will simply suggest that your thoughts of certain behaviors are sinful, are misguided, or wrong, or archaic or outdated. So I remind you, the overall character of born-again lives is a pursuit of purifying themselves even as He is pure. And that is a lifelong pursuit such that I can say as we grow together in Christ, we will become more and more like Him. As John summarizes at the end of the letter, the end of the semester, if you will, we know, don't we, that those born of God do not sin as a way of life. Remember Jesus Christ. Do not kiss Jesus goodbye. You can pursue righteousness. In chapter 3, because God's seed, the Holy Spirit abides in you. Here John makes another claim, a startling claim, when he says, but he who was born of God keeps him. 
Please notice, while pronouns are not capitalized in New Testament Greek, they are in some translations to provide clarity. I believe this one they got right, which is a stunning point. At the beginning of verse 18, he says, those born of God do not sin. Then he tells us why. Because he who was born of God, notice the capital H, that is the only begotten son, Jesus, keeps him, that is those children who are born again of God. Here's the point. Jesus himself, the son of God, keeps forever those born, uh, uh, born again of God. Meaning, for those, those for whom Jesus died, listen, he will keep you. Are you listening? God's seed, the spirit remains in you, and the son of God keeps you. And I am praying that he will and that you will listen. Such that the evil one, this is John's way throughout this letter of referring to the devil. The devil cannot touch the one who belongs to God. I want to be clear, he will attack you but he cannot have you. You belong body and soul to God and are kept by the Son of God. Verse 19. Fourth thing that we know from these last nine verses, we know that we are of God. Do you know that? John is actually telling you, I am telling you, that you are incredibly of God. What does this mean? It means that we belong to God, that we are His, that we are born of God, that we are His children. We, we talked about this a couple of months ago. The, the world is under the false assumption that everyone, everyone is a child of God. And, and while it is true that all people bear the image of God, it is not true that all are of God, that all belong to God, that all are children of God. Only those born again are of God. And so I would suggest very gently we should surround ourselves with other brothers and sisters. We, we should be evangelistically friendly toward the world, but we should surround ourselves with brothers and sisters in Christ. Notice the contrast John draws. We are of God in the whole world, you see. Those not born of God, this evil world system and its rebellion against God right now, they right now lie in the power of the evil one. Remember, John, Jesus told the disciples one day, you are of your father, the devil. He, Jesus called, this, called Satan the ruler of this world. Paul called him the prince of the power of the air, by whom everyone walks. Everyone outside of Christ walks according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of this world. They are under his power. They are under his control. They are held captive by him. And their only hope, their only help of rescue is in the gospel. It's a stark contrast he is drawing. We, we and we alone are of God. This is not meant to be a statement of arrogance. It is a statement of eternal humbling truth. And you alone have the hope that others desperately need. Verse 20, the fifth and last thing that we know, a truth that John has said over and over through this letter, is a truth that the world will decry. They will claim it as false. Do not let them convince you. And we know that the Son of God has come. 
We know the false teachers were in some way denying that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. They either denied his incarnation or they denied his deity or denied that he was God as he hung on the cross. Lots of guesses, but in the end, they denied that he was indeed the divine Son of God. So also today, you're going to run into it everywhere. Many will acknowledge that a man named Jesus lived, that he was a good teacher, a, a good example, a, a moral man, a man who changed the world by his very teaching, but they deny that he was God in the flesh, the Son of God. You see, every other religion denies it. They must. They must. Because if Jesus was the Son of God, then of necessity, Christianity is the only true religion. Do, do you understand that? Every other religion paints God in different strokes, but they all together deny that God revealed Himself ultimately through His Son, which means having graduated from high school, some of you on your way to college, others to a vocation, you will, be, you will readily hear that you must leave this childish notion behind. When are you going to grow up and cut the apron strings? See, if you want to live your own life in sinful rebellion, you must deny the deity of Jesus. Because if He is God, then what He said is alone true, and to Him we will all one day give an account. So deny Him, they must. When they seek to entice you, when they seek to draw you away, understand the reason uh, to, to, to entice you to sin is because they sin and misery loves company. And the result is eternal condemnation. I say that with great sorrow. I've said it this way before. Your beliefs and your behaviors must match. If you believe that Jesus was the Son of God, then you must obey Him. But if you don't want to obey Him, if your beliefs and your behaviors collide, then you must deny one or the other. You must either change your beliefs or change your behaviors. And many wanting to pursue sinful behaviors simply deny their once held beliefs. They must because beliefs and behaviors must match. We know that the Son of God has come. Remember Jesus. By the way, all of these we know statements are in the perfect tense. What that means is that at some point in the past, such, uh, we know, and that knowledge affected our lives to the present day. We know that the Son of God has come. And to magnify the vivid nature of that coming, John writes the, His coming in the present tense. Certainly, He came at some point in the past, 2,000 years ago, in what is called the Incarnation, when Jesus came down from heaven as the Son of God, took on human flesh, wrapped Himself in human flesh. And, but that coming is not just an historical fact, although it is that. It is a present truth. He came, and it must right now be believed. We know that the Son of God has come. And by His coming and by our believing that truth, He has given us, again, back to perfect tense, He has given us understanding of the gospel. Uh, in the past, we came to faith in Christ so that now we continue to believe and understand the truth of His coming and His gospel. Remember Jesus. Jesus. 
so that we may know, present tense, we may know him right now who is true, and we are in him who is true, who is the him uh, who is true that we have both know and are in. Most agree that this is referring to God the Father, but I would also point out that Jesus came to reveal the Father to us. Consider these verses very quickly. Hebrews 1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and many ways in these last days in which we live, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. And he, Jesus, is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, upholds all things by the word of his power. Colossians chapter 2, for in him, that is in Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. That's who Jesus is. John chapter 1, because he is fully God. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained or He has made Him known. That's what Jesus came to do. John chapter 14, three and a half years after His ministry began as getting ready to end, Philip said to Him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? That's what I came to do, was to show you the Father. John 17, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The Scripture is clear, both that Jesus was and is God, the Son of God, and that He came to reveal the Father. He came to reveal or show God to us, such that John can go on in our text to unbelievably say, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. To have the Son is to have eternal life. The clear teaching of Scripture is this. You cannot know and be in the Father without the Son. His name is Jesus. This is eternal life, Jesus said, that they may know you, Father. That's why I was sent to reveal you to them. This is eternal life. And John says it most clearly as anywhere in Scripture. This is the true God and eternal life. Again, discussion about who this pronoun, this, refers to, the closest antecedent is Jesus Christ. Even if it refers to the Father, the Father is the one whom Jesus came to reveal, and we are in Him who is true, both in the Father and in the Son, and this is the true God and eternal life. Do you understand who Jesus is? If this is true, and it is, then John concludes, we conclude this morning with a final command. Little children, hear the voice of your parents. Guard yourselves from idols. While this may look like a PS, a postscript that John meant to drop in somewhere in the letter and forgotten, so he just sticks it in here, it actually makes sense. If we can know that we have eternal life by believing in the name of the Son of God, if we know that God hears and answers our prayers, if we know that we, those born of God live lives of righteousness, if we know that we are of God, if we know that the Son of God has come to give us understanding, to reveal the Father to us, that God may live in us and that we may know, listen, that we may know the true and the living God and His Son, Jesus Christ, and through that knowledge have eternal life, if all of that is true, 
true, then why would we listen to those who would offer idolatrous false teaching to us? Why would you consider that? Why would we turn from the true God to pursue sinful, destructive lifestyles? Why would we turn away from eternal life? Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Do not be lured away and enticed by that which is not true. Remember and follow Jesus Christ.